from the Jeff Nyquist Studios on California's North Coast and our flagship broadcast facilities at WIBG 1020, Atlantic City Suburban Philadelphia's number one news talk station, you're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. We have been fooled. We've been tricked. The fall of communism was not as advertised. The machinery of the totalitarian state took control of country after country by overthrowing the old Stalinist system and replacing it with a KGB-dominated social democracy. The Eastern Bloc countries, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Romania, and Bulgaria, went through revolutions orchestrated by the KGB on orders from Moscow. This is what we're going to talk about today. This was possible because communist agents had already taken control of the dissident movement in Eastern Europe by the time Gorbachev took power. On this edition of the Jeff Nyquist program, we're going to talk to two researchers. Each has uncovered facts about the so-called fall of communism. These two gentlemen have foreign accents, so I ask you to pay careful attention. Their words require special effort. It is not permissible to say that you do not understand their language. You must understand it. You must hear them. This is the testimony that our leaders and our experts have ignored. This is the truth that we do not want to face. And we'll be back with my guest, Robert Bukar, after these messages. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. Thanks for making WIBG 1020 a part of your life. We are Live Radio 1020, WIBG. Where more people every day hear the truth. From Hurley in the Morning to The Wondrous Story with Dave Bailey, Jay Sekulow live in the American Center for Law and Justice, and Josh Henning Afternoons. South Jersey's cutting edge Christian news talk and your station for Wibbage Oldies every weekend. WIBG 1020 and WIBG.com, plugging you into life. And now, once again, here's your host of the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. With me is Robert Bukar, my guest. He's a documentary filmmaker. He's presently working on a, a documentary about the fall of communism in Europe uh, back more than 15 years ago. Uh, welcome to the show, Robert. Thanks, thanks for having me here. Uh, it's interesting. You've, uh, in interviewing subjects involved in the revolution in uh, Czechoslovakia, You've gotten some interesting testimony from some people. Uh, maybe you could uh, tell us a little bit what you found out. Well, that, that's a long story. I, for my film, I interviewed in the last three years some like 16 people. That's uh, such a you know, load of information. It, it's hard to compress and uh, yeah. characterize uh, in such a short time. Is, uh, is the revolution in Czechoslovakia as straightforward as the people rising up and saying we've had enough of communism? No way. That, that, that's, that's a sort of illusion which uh, was made by Western media and speci specifically in the United States. I guess from what I learned in the last three, four years working on this documentary, uh, I can say that there is enough evidence to make it clear that uh, there was no way situation for any revolution. That, uh, it was pretty much all about changing the system without losing the power. Now, you interviewed some of the people, the the uh, actual demonstrations that sort of triggered everything. You, you interviewed a, a security official that was involved in, in those demonstrations, didn't you? Oh uh, yeah, I interviewed one of 
former captain of secret police. Uh, his name was Ludwig Givchak. And this man, his goal, his objective was actually to create new students' organization, which will infiltrate the other dissident organizations. And at the end, in November 1989, he was in charge of organizing demonstrations, students' protests, which led to actually physical confrontation with the riot police, where supposedly uh, the student was killed by police, brutal police. So Captain Giftschak, who was in charge of infiltrating student organizations, was tasked with creating a, a, a riot, in effect, that would destabilize the situation in the country. Yeah, the riot was meant to actually uh, be a spark for other action. In his eyes, this riot was supposed to start the military action, pretty much, to secured the power by the Communist Party. Uh, of course, it didn't happen, and um, the opposite happened. You know, the, the riot went to actually negotiations around the round table with Communists and creating new government. So is there an indication that the orders for creating the riot and creating the changes in Czechoslovakia came from Moscow? Well, he's quite sure that it was organized from, everything was organized from Moscow. Of course, if you talk to those people, you clearly that everything was so compartmentalized that everybody was doing own task, own job, going after his own objective, and nobody actually saw the big picture. So since they were all following orders, it was the people giving the orders that saw the big picture, but the people on the ground thought they were doing things for certain reasons they weren't doing them at all. Exactly, and you can talk the same thing, you can say the same thing about the dissident movements and dissidents, you know. According to Captain Zivchak, actually he believed that by 1985, all dissident organizations in former Czechoslovakia were under control of secret police. Wow. And, of course, Charter 77, and I've talked to a, a number of Czech people myself, have told me that Charter 77 was uh, basically a secret police operation from the beginning. Well, you can say that because uh, when it came to Charter 77, 217 people signed it, and 156 of them were former communists. Hmm. So uh, Charter 77 was founded by former communists, and I would say especially last year before before the re revolution in, 80, in 89, when new faces started to show up, nobody knew them. And they were very active, and later they become actually involved in the politics very strongly. When I look back 20 years, I can see that it was probably pushed by CIA to get their people in to get, you know, somehow involved because they pretty much overslept the whole thing. Did the CIA ever catch on to the fact that these organizations were really controlled by the communist secret police? Oh, I'm sure about that. When I talked to one of the CIA men, I asked him, you knew that... Charter 77 was uh, was run by KGB, so why did you finance them, you know? And he just smiled and said, would you miss such an opportunity? So 
I guess it's pretty obvious that those guys were supported by CIA no matter what, because CIA saw opportunity to be part of the changes, not just look, you know, what Russians are doing. Mm, so they they just wanted to get on the bandwagon. Yeah, definitely, because uh, the whole organization was financed from Stockholm, which was uh, run by a guy named Yanoch. He had really good ties to Russia, and... Uh, they were getting money from all around the world. Like they were getting money from Moscow. They were getting money from Soros Foundation. I guess, according to data, Soros pumped it like $7 million in this adventure by himself because he was a big supporter of Perestroika, I believe. Hmm. It's all pretty, pretty bizarre if you think of it. Uh, of course, the whole archive and database uh, disappeared after revolution, so nobody can prove anything. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, let's talk about the hero of the revolution, Vaclav Havel. People in this country, we, we kind of uh, celebrated him, and he came over here to the United States and spoke before Congress. Uh, what's the real story on him? If you talk to real political prisoners and dissidents in Czech Republic, uh, they are not so positive about him because... At the time, they were in the jail, you know, under such a brutal conditions. He was sitting in the jail smoking cigars, you know. And when he was let out of the jail, you know, the limousine from U.S. Embassy was waiting for him. So some people, like Zivchak, was saying that uh, he was definitely collaborating with secret police. He knew what's going on. There was actually a file on him, so... He was just groomed to be one of the leaders down the road. Hmm. If you talk to some of his bodyguards, they think that he was just naive. Hmm. And that he didn't see actually how deeply he's sinking in, in, in that game. There were two guys who were running so-called organization in that time in 89. It's so-called bridge. It was like a bridge between Moscow and dissidents. These guys came to... Havel and John Bok was there as well, and uh, they were telling him, hey, you know, I'm just coming from Soviet embassy, and they have nothing against you to be a president. And they were, like, laughing, you know, Havel and, and, and Bok, they have nothing against me to be a president. And when they're walking to second floor, you know, Havel is a heavy smoker. He has to rest in the middle and say, you know, John, Sometimes I think this is just a bad dream and we will all wake up in the prison. Hmm. Who knows what he was thinking, you know. But he definitely had to know what's in the in the game. Because there is another there is another story from other bodyguards, Stanislav Milotar, which is a good friend of mine. He was involved in one of the meetings with KGB, Vaslav KGB, because they were meeting quite often, I guess. So there was a meeting, be there were a number of meetings between Vaclav Havel and the KGB uh, about the time he was uh, being asked to take power uh, when this uh, Velvet yes. Revolution was going on. Yes, that's, that's right. And this, this specific meeting I, I want to mention just after the revolution, there were five people in the room, uh, Milota, Havel, two KGB, officers and one translator and there is a funny part to it just before they went to meeting like shortly before that guy 
named Franciszek Jano, who I mentioned, he was running the Charter Foundation. He gave Milota a tape recorder to record the conversation. They went to the room, they were sitting there for 30 minutes talking pretty much about nothing, and then tape recorders started to beep. So Milota sort of panicked, you know, left the room and just went to the restroom, dumped the recorder in the, in the bowl and ran away and never came back to the meeting. So then when Milota told me this, I said, you know, did you ever realize that Jano gave you that recorder to beep on purpose so they can actually spend another hour without you there, without any witnesses? And Milota sort of looked at me and said, now I have to think about it for the rest of my life that I miss this thing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. It was supposedly be, as rumors goes, the meeting when uh, Havel was told that he will be the president. Hmm. But there is, of course, no witnesses because Milota was forced to run out. Yeah, so they were able to, he was, Havel was alone with the KGB at that exact strategic moment. Yeah, they could never get him alone because Milota or Bok was always with him, you know, like a body doubles all the time on him. So they had to find a way how to, you know, they, they couldn't ha couldn't have any witnesses. Yeah. Interesting information. Now, um, when uh, uh, this whole thing happened, uh, of course, in the West, we were surprised. We were pleased. We thought that this was a good change. Um, from the people you've interviewed, uh, what is the real state of this social democracy that they have in uh, the Czech Republic now in Slovakia? And what's the nature of the people that are in charge there now? Are these... Reliable people? Are these people really authentic, pro-Western or pro-capitalist, pro-democratic? Well, that's a other big question because it depends who you talk to. But I would say in general, in all political parties, right or left, there are a bunch of former communists, you know. Hmm. So it's pretty hard to say who is for what. Of course, now everybody is for money. That's one common thing. But, of course, and it will be for a long time big pressure to go back to communist type of thinking because the socialist way of life is uh, really popular there. So that's why communists still have, like, uh, I don't know, 18% of voters in Czech Republic. You know, social democrats, which is one of the two biggest parties there, and it's now called, ironically, Communist Party with Human Face, that's strongly for Moscow, I would say, oriented. And then, of course, you have the so-called right-oriented party, which is called Civic Democrats, but many former communists in the party as well. And now, I've, I've looked at some of these other um, former communist countries, and it seems that the privatization process favored people from the secret police who acquired some of the biggest companies, or they were agents of these people, and or they were these companies became acquired by front companies from Russia. Is the economic failure or the failure to produce a better life for the people in that country, which is you mentioned that communism is still popular there, is that been something that's been engineered? There was not really failure of, of economic system. You know, it, it, the system was working sort of pretty well. So the only problem, I guess, what they had how to become the part of global economy and not lose the power. So the whole privatization was a huge, you know, scam because it is what you mentioned that was the way how to transfer economy 
in the right hands. So, again, in the hands of former communists, a little bit, mostly former agents and uh, and secret police people. Hmm. And under influence of uh, what is called Russian mafia, or other people call it KGB now. You know? So, that's what it is. And there are many very super rich people there now who probably tell you how they got rich, and which is, if you listen to it, it's absolutely ridiculous way. But uh, just uh, people have a short memory, they forget these things. So we're, we're talking about something that had to have been organized and prepared over a period of decades in advance. Yeah, that's what Bukowski is talking about. He's According to his documents he got from KGB files and other sources, it's... You're talking about Vladimir Bukowski, the leading Russian dissident. Yeah, Vladimir Bukowski, yeah. So what he, what he told me and what he actually published in his judgment in Moscow as well, this, this was mastermind in a way by Yuri Andropov, who actually in late 70s started to set up think tanks in Austria to, to figure out how to do this, you know, economical switch. Hmm. So, of course, it didn't go exactly how somebody wants to plan, but uh, in a way, it has been done. So they, they had a plan. Of course, the plans don't work out perfectly, but they did follow it, and it did produce what we have today. They produce what we have today, and then uh, as you look in uh, Russia today, it, they are still in the power more than ever. Now, you interviewed um, the the man who was head of the CIA at the time these changes took place, uh, Robert Gates. Yes. Uh, now, uh, we're talking to Robert Bukhar, a documentary filmmaker who has been working on a documentary on the changes in Eastern Europe and Central Europe and uh, the, the fall of communism. And when you interviewed Robert Gates, did you think that you were interviewing a person who understood what was going on in the changes that the communists had managed this, that the communists were attempting some kind of maneuver, uh, whether it was going to work or not? Do you think that Gates knew this? Well, it's hard to say. Uh, he's a very intelligent, smart man. Uh, question is, what he was telling me is what he could tell me, or if it's something what he really believes in, that's another thing. From what he was saying, they believe that Gorbachev wants to change, you know, the system, and they wanted to help. They wanted to be part of it, and they didn't want to disturb the process, so it doesn't take, you know, a wrong turn. So administration, according to him, was afraid that they will scare Russians off or doing something more drastic or, you know, use the military or whatever. So the Russians kind of just announced to the West that they were going to make the changes and that we uh, in America better not interfere or it would come out some way that we didn't like. Exactly. And then uh, I, I read the transcript Vladimir Lukovsky gave me from Malta, what he got from Gorbachev, secret files. And it pretty much uh, supports exactly that. Gorbachev was just saying Bush, you know, what he's going to do and ask him not to interfere. And uh, Bush said, OK. And that was the, the Malta conference was, was that in December of 89? I think it was November. November it was 89. just shortly before, or October even. It was before the revolution in Czech Republic. And that was the, the was the elder Bush, uh, uh, President uh, George Herbert Walker Bush. They met at the island of Malta with Gorbachev and Shevardnadze, 
the Soviet foreign minister, and just prior to these several revolutions in these different countries uh, in the Warsaw Pact. Yeah, it was just sort of like a discussion and pretty much, I would say, Gorbachev's briefing on what he's going to do. Of course, 1989 was the first year that uh, Bush was president, the elder Bush was president. Um, he just got elected in 88 after Reagan left. And uh, Reagan had embraced Gorbachev in, uh, what was it, Red Square and and said that Gorbachev was a person we could do business with, something that uh, probably we never thought we'd hear, hear from uh, Ronald Reagan. Yeah. I guess, according to some information, Reagan was, in the end of his term, sort of convinced that Gorbachev is not, after changing, that he what he wants to do is just to, to pretty much save the system. Oh, is that right? In a way, both versions are true. He was changing the system, but he wanted to preserve it as well, you know, in a, in a sense. Hmm. And uh, when you were over there, you got a chance to interview... Uh, Vladimir Huchin, who was an uh, intelligence captain, and I, I had uh, written about him on my website in the past, and I wonder what uh, what he had to tell you. He a, was a captain in the uh, Czech intelligence service. Yeah, Vladimir Huchin, he's a really brave man. He's, he spent most of the normalization era, what we call between in 70s and 80s, in the jail, you know. So then he got out of the jail just before, I guess, revolution. He didn't know what was going on at that point, but he pretty soon started to see that there is something wrong with the whole thing when he saw that pretty much uh, so many secret police officers, you know, were left in the jobs just under sort of uh, assumptions that we need specialists, you know, they are good. When he started to be involved, he was nominated by that... Uh, organization of political prisoners to represent them in a new intelligence service, and he specialized on uh, left extremism and terrorism, and when he started to discover certain things, uh, Social Democratic Party, who took over just around 2000, they, they put him in the jail for a year, and then he spent years in the court till 2006, when actually he was uh, cleared out of the ch all of the charges, but uh, they were after him hmm. in a pretty hard way. So they did not want anybody to reveal that left-wing or terrorist groups, or um, I believe he had some information about connections with, with terrorists in the Arab world, were still involved with the Czech government. Yeah, that's right, and former secret uh, police people and people with KGB ties who are actually supporting politicians. Yeah, it seems like... Because that goes, that goes, for example, to the case of Jan Kavan. Jan Kavan was a uh, foreign minister from 1980 to 2002, you know, and then deputy prime minister from 1999 to 2002. And uh, one of his associates published a book about Jan Kavan being KGB agent. And Huchin was ordered to go around and buy those books out of the bookstore so they cannot be sold to people. Hmm. Wow. So that shows you connection. But no matter what, Jan Kavan, you know, later was promoted. Uh, and he became the president of 57th uh, Session General Assembly in the UN, you know, in 2002. 
With me is Robert Bukhar, a documentary filmmaker, talking about the revolutions that supposedly overthrew communism in Eastern Europe. And we'll be back after these messages. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. Thanks for making WIBG 1020 your first choice for the good news and the local news. The overwhelming response from throughout all of Atlantic City, Cape May, and suburban Philadelphia to our exciting lineup of programs begins with Harry Hurley and Hurley in the Mornings from 7 to 11. Then at 12 noon, it's your chance to call in and talk with Jay Sekulow live. That's right. Jay moves to his new time at 12 noon. It's your chance to talk live with Jay. Then at 1 p.m., it's New Life Live with Steve Arterburn and the gang. As always, your questions are answered live right here on WIBG 1020. And at 2 p.m., join Dr. Charles Stanley for his new time slot right here at WIBG for In Touch. We're so thankful for the overwhelming response to WIBG 1020, and we thank you. And we encourage you to please sponsor and support the advertisers and programs you hear on Atlantic City, Cape May's number one home for Christian news talk and local two-way talk. WIBG 1020 AM. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. I'm Jeff Nyquist, and with me is my guest, Robert Bukar. He's a documentary filmmaker. He's been working on a documentary for the last uh, four years or so on the changes in Eastern Europe, the fall of communism. Uh, so we were talking about uh, Kaven, the KGB, accused KGB agent. He went to work at the UN, right? Yes. And you had, a, you had some uh, other information you picked up about Kaven's background. Uh, when I talk to some people who are now digging in the secret police files in archives, they found out some interesting information about this. There was a car running regularly, you know, money and print material to Czech Republic from Germany. Uh, and uh, that was, Jan Kavan was organizing this. And every run carried $6,000 in special compartments and found documents for this car and driver were provided in Germany by the guy who used to be very good uh, friends with Jekyll, the famous terrorist. That's one thing. So then when secret police, Czech secret police, found out about this, they started investigate Kavan and started to file on him. But immediately when they started to do that, the order came from Russia to stop investigation and to destroy the files. So this is the only evidence now which is in the files to find out if somebody was working for KGB or a double agent for CIA KGB. So Jan Kaven was, was in the West. He was in England. He was then supposedly helping the Western intelligence or whatever smuggle things into the Czechoslovakia? Probably. But the point is that he was also working for Russians because they didn't want him to be investigated by secret police in Czech Republic. Uh, so the Russians knew that he was a double agent, but they were so confident of it that he was working for them, they canceled the Czech uh, counterintelligence investigation. Exactly. And they actually they found out that the car was actually not stopping and going back always uh. from Prague to Germany, but it was continuing driving east to Poland and other places. So there was a bigger thing behind the whole thing. And that was the only way how you can find out these days if somebody was working for KGB. You only find a little note in the files that investigations, mm. the file closed on the request of our friends. That's the only 
note how you can find out that KGB placed the order to discontinue the investigation. So, so they found this type of note on Jan Kavan or Franciszek Janochon, Jiří Pelikan and other people. So now we know that they were working for Moscow. And um, Vladimir Bukovsky, I, I saw a part of the clip that you did with him, the Russian dissident, and he it, it amused me when he said, well, you can't really talk about these things in the West or to Western people because they'll think, you know, you're crazy. But in reality, he's found documents, he's got massive proof that the, this whole thing was organized from Moscow, these uh, the fall of communism. People in the United States and people living in Western-type democracies, they can never understand it. They can never accept this type of thinking. They don't understand that there is ideology or conspiracy behind everything. And they just think that everything is negotiable and you can deal with everybody, you know, face to face, which is, of course, not the case. Because you don't always know who you're dealing with when some of these people are agents of a foreign power and secretly pretending to be your friends or businessmen or or dissidents, and, and in reality, they're all kind of playing a, a game. Yeah, and if, of course, they have a long-term plans. They have plenty of time, you know, they're not in a hurry. You know, there's just, uh, everything takes time. And think this about deception, you know, you can never find out what's real, what's not, because if you would be able to find out, it wouldn't be deception. Yeah, it's like peeling an onion. You peel away one layer and there's another layer underneath you have to peel, and you peel that and there's nothing till you find nothing at all. The other interesting issue, what one of those investigators in the archives, you know, brought up, is how actually Aldrich Ames influenced the whole thing, the whole situation in those years. Oh, now that's interesting. Aldrich Ames, for those listeners that don't know, he was a he was an American uh, chief in counterintelligence who, in fact, was working for the KGB for many years. He was actually chief of Eastern European operation during the time. So he knew about everything what was CIA running in Eastern Europe in those critical years. So now the question is, was the fact that he was double agent for KGB, was that fact positive or negative? How influence was on that Soviet side? Were they more confident that they have their own men, so they were willing to go with certain changes? Or was it negative in the sense that now West has no idea who is who and who is working for whom because he was making all those decisions and he saw everything and he passed the older information. So Here we had an American intelligence leader who was in a position to make decisions and influence higher political thinking and to change perceptions, people's perceptions of what was happening in Eastern Europe. And so people, our own leaders, trusting the CIA, would have, would have imagined that, okay, everything's going well, we'll just st step back and let the Russians do it their way. And it's incredible. It, it's, it boggles yeah, the mind. It boggles the mind. It's pretty scary if you think that, okay, so let's say the half of the people CIA placed in that region, you know, are maybe double agents, but who knows? Yeah, if they if the CIA got penetrated at that level, how many more uh, KGB agents are in the CIA? And and of course we've seen one failure of the CIA after another 
in uh, recent years. Um, who's to say that we're done seeing such failures? Yeah, the question is if actually CIA ever really understood the Russian problem in the first place. You know, that, that is interesting. I had on the show, I had uh, Tenet Bagley, who recently wrote the book Spy Wars, and he told me some things about the fact that back after World War II, uh, when they were first trying to infiltrate into Poland, that the Russians and the communists were controlling the Polish underground and misleading us into supporting sort of false uh, anti-communist movements in Poland, taking our money and, and finding out who all our agents were. Yeah, and you can apply this across the board to the whole Eastern Europe. If these methods were used in the 40s, and we know they were used in Russia in the 20s, we can, we'd have to expect that they're being used right now today. Oh, definitely, in a much more sophisticated way, I would think. Also, for those who have a tendency not to accept this type of you know, thinking, look at how Russians and secret police in those countries were liquidating their files. You know, like, According to one person I interviewed also, he was, like a, he was a member of Politburo in Czech Republic Communist Party, and he was also working as an agent, supposedly for CIA. Uh, he was telling me that uh, the Russians started to liquidate the files in June of 89. So it's like a half a year before the revolution. They were moving one plane load of documents every day from Prague to Moscow. Hmm. So they pretty much destroyed everything, you know. And so they can never really be free in Czechoslovakia or the Czech Republic because they'll never know the truth. Of course, and nobody will ever know the truth, you know. So the files were not destroyed, they were just moved east, you know. And actually, those files which were found, you can suspect that they were found for a reason. You know, they were just left to be found. Hmm. So they maybe even produced fake files that they allowed people to find. I wouldn't say go so far to produce fake files, but just leave something behind. You have to sacrifice some unimportant, you know, people and... Um, you have to satisfy the public, you know, and press. Like in the case of Czech Republic, um, secret police files were released, like 200,000 names or something like that. Uh, but intelligence, counterintelligence and military intelligence files were never open. They never will be open. Hmm. And those are those most important, which are in the, you know, global related areas of terrorism and other things. Do you think, having talked to all these people, that um, um, American officials are are going to figure this out? That we're that the American people will maybe one day be clear on all this. Uh, I mean, you're working on this documentary. Uh, uh, is this something that can be communicated to the public, or even communicated to leaders who have other things they want to concentrate on? Uh, I'm going be skeptic now, I don't think so. I, I think there is no political will and political need to make this public, so there will no pressure to change the history the way it was written. I can see from case with my film that any time I contacted media, there was a silence, you know, so nobody wants to vent this stuff out. And public is probably not even interested. Uh, especially young people, they have no clue, you know, what happened 20, 25 years ago, and they don't really care. Hmm. And, of course, there must be some kind of consequence in the future for uh, this kind of thing being allowed to pass, 
because if the communists created new structures, got rid of the old system because they wanted to integrate with the world economy but maintain control, if they have succeeded in that, then we really have the same poison that we had before, the same enemy that we had before, only now he's hidden. We don't know he's there, and we don't know what damage he may be doing to us in the meanwhile. Yeah, you are absolutely correct, but uh, uh, what you can do about it, and uh, once we find out that this is the case, it will be too late. Uh, with me is Robert Bukar. He's a documentary filmmaker. He's been working on a film about the fall of communism in Eastern Europe and how that fall was not as advertised, at least not as advertised in the United States. Uh, Robert, do you have any concluding thoughts for our listeners about this whole thing we've been discussing? Concluding thoughts? Uh, you know, at this point, I collected so much information that I'm really thinking in that thing, and I'm trying to make sense out of it myself to make it somehow you know, intelligible and, and pass this to the public in the film or even in the form of the box. But uh, it's very depressing. <laughs> it's very depressing. <laughs> I don't see the way out of it. We just try to pass the information and hope that it will make any difference, but probably it will not. Yeah. Well, I want to thank you, Robert, for being on the show and uh, hope we can invite you back sometime and talk and hope that there's further news on your documentary project and maybe this radio program will get some people interested in it. Thank you, Jeff, very much. Well, thanks, Robert, and uh, we'll, we'll stay in touch. You're listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. Thanks for making WIBG 1020 a part of your life. We are Live Radio 1020, WIBG. Where more people every day hear the truth. From Hurley in the Morning to The Wondrous Story with Dave Bailey, Jay Sekulow live in the American Center for Law and Justice, and Josh Henning Afternoons. South Jersey's cutting edge Christian news talk and your station for Wibbage Oldies every weekend. WIBG 1020 and WIBG.com, plugging you into life. Now, once again, here's your host of the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. All right, we're back, and we've just done an interview with uh, Robert Bukar, a uh, documentary filmmaker looking into the changes in uh, Europe, the fall of communism. And now we're going to talk to uh, a journalist, Thomas Pompowski, in Poland. Uh, we are calling him in Poland. He is a journalist working for Polska Press. And I want you to pay attention carefully. He has an accent, so some words may be a little difficult, but it's well worth paying attention to what this man is saying because he is going to tell us the same story in former communist Poland that Robert Bukhar just told us about communist Czechoslovakia. Thomas Pompowski, uh, welcome to the show, Thomas. Yes, thank you for inviting me. We don't get a lot of news from uh, Poland and from the former Warsaw Pact countries. And uh, we, we had a lot of news when Solidarity was going on and, and Lech Walesa was uh, doing his thing. But we don't, uh, we don't hear much today. How has it worked out with Solidarity having taken over and communism falling? Uh, is, is communism gone in Poland today? I should say that us in the other uh, Central European countries, Communist Party, uh, in one night uh, converted itself into Social Democrat Party. 
And now they, they would say they've never been believing communists and uh, they are mostly presenting themselves as democrats and trying to blur their past. And communism uh, is influential in Poland. We are now in the middle of a very important fight about the communist past regarding not only the communist social democrat, but also people from the opposition who uh, compromised uh, with the secret police during communist times. I can imagine that in, in the West, the uh, view or the picture of the solidarity was one movement. In 1980s, it was really one movement. The people would gather and would pray together, would strike together. It's not only they were striking for salaries, striking to uh, press uh, communists and to free political prisoners, and most of all, to cut uh, Poland from this poisonous influence from Moscow. The Pope came in 1979 and he told the people to stand up against this anti-Christian movement, which was the communist control in Poland. Yeah, the meaning of his homilies was exactly like you put it. And uh, people were encouraged. And in the 1970s, there was formed a trade union. And actually, it was a credible of solidarity. Those people would gather in apartments, they would uh, go on hunger strikes, but most of all, they would study the Pope's homilies and they would pray together. This labor movement was equipped by the Christian values, and it, it must be stressed that it was not only about the uh, social benefits, but most of all about truth and the most important values in, in life. When the uh, shipyard workers went on strike, they were uh, striking under the banner. Uh, and uh, there was a martial law which was exactly uh, called by, uh, deposed by Jaruzelski to uh, destroy solidarity. The uh, elements in this solidarity endangered the Polish state. It was not a danger from the outside, but it was danger from the inside for, of course, for the Communist Party. And the whole idea of the, the martial law was to encourage uh, and to pick up uh, some solidarity members who were willing to cooperate with the with the Communist Party, who were sometimes already recruited by the secret police to participate in the long march for freedom, as they would put it. But there was very important movement inside of Solidarity, who was so unique that they, they never compromised, and they formed movement inside movement. So let me summarize here, see if I understand. When the crackdown yeah. of General Jaruzelski came, they used the opportunity to strengthen their agents within Solidarity. And then later on, what, what formed, yeah. perhaps in response to that, was fighting Solidarity. Um, a, a more solid uh, anti-communist grouping within the movement. And they created their own now, you, this is interesting. They created their own counterintelligence to prevent themselves from being penetrated. Is that right? Exactly. 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 
And uh, they, they, if we are saying about the persecution of solidarity, we mostly mean the fighting solidarity because during the martial law, they were sitting in prisons for a, a couple of weeks sometimes. And they were beaten up. They were uh, persecuted by, by, by the secret police. And they never compromised. And their own goal was to get rid of this uh, Soviet influences and have a free elections. We never heard about fighting solidarity here in the United States, but the person we saw always representing solidarity was Valesa. So, so Valesa's solidarity, the main solidarity that the West saw on TV, that group was compromised fairly early in the movement. Yeah, exactly. Um, just a few days ago, um, different members of Solidarity uh, were demanding uh, from Leg Valenza to reveal his uh, secret communist files, uh, which are showing that uh, he was recruited by the secret police. So there's been accusations, and I remember reading that one former uh, secret police officer uh, said in court, I believe, that, that Valesa was definitely an agent of the secret police. Is, isn't that right? One of the secret police has admitted that he cooperated under codename Molek. And it was during some crackdown, now if I understand you correctly, in the 1970s, that it's believed that he went over to the secret police. That's right. So basically what happens is when the communist authorities crack down, uh, they scare people and they, they get people into a compromised position and they get them through intimidation to become agents. That, that's exactly what happened. With me is uh, Thomas Pampowski, a, a Polish journalist working for Polska Press, and we are discussing what really happened with solidarity in Poland and the fall of communism. How is it that the West uh, merely focused on the compromise solidarity, uh, whereas fighting solidarity was unable to get public attention? That's a very, very important uh, question. The West, mostly the politicians who were advising President Carter, were interested only in movements supported by communist media. This is really important information that you're giving us, and it's something alien to Western experience. It's one of the reasons that Westerners have trouble understanding the situation in, in Poland and other uh, Central European and, and East European former Soviet bloc countries. We have, for example, Vladimir Putin making noises about missiles being deployed in Poland, and I was very surprised to see the polls that were shown in the United States showing that the Polish people don't favor the placing of the anti-missile batteries in Poland. They manipulate the polls, but most of the Polish people, of course, are supporting the missile defense because they know what Russia is uh, all about. We're supporting uh, the Chechen people who were just demanding uh, for themselves the freedom which was taken from them, and most of the Polish press were informing about it with Alexander Colonel Alexander Likvinenko, who escaped Putin's role and, and finally was murdered in, in, in London. Alexander Litvinenko is somebody that you've met and talked to, as I understand, and, and he is a very fascinating uh, person. He's the man who was poisoned with polonium-210 here last November and died, and um, uh, perhaps you could, you could tell us a bit about that. Yeah, Alexander Litvinenko was a really brilliant man and, and a hero. He was living in Britain. He escaped Russia 
um, and he uh, immediately was trying to alarm West that Putin and uh, and his colleagues from KGB are now hijacking Russia, and uh, they uh, are portraying themselves as uh, Democrats. But uh, inside Russia, they are really helping terrorists. So they are continuing with this tradition as KGB had. Litvinenko had an interesting thing to say about Al-Qaeda. Uh, perhaps you could, you could tell us a bit about that. Exactly. Uh, Alexander Litvinenko learned from his sources. And uh, I can say now that one of his sources was a colleague who uh, was a witness of the, uh, in a training camp when uh, one of the close aides to Osama bin Laden, uh, this uh, Egyptian guy, um, al-Zawakiri, was trained in Dagestan, FSB uh, camp, uh, and he was uh, giving a training, not only the political training, but also this military training, and all of sorts, uh, the counterintelligence training, you know, how to steal the identities, how to control information, how to dis- disinform people, how to use the propaganda, and, and so on and so forth. That was a really important uh, training. So so basically, uh, just to make sure we have the name right, he was naming Ayman al-Zawari, who is the number two leader in al-Qaeda, and who many people say is actually the man who runs al-Qaeda now, uh, he was naming him as being trained by the KGB FSB, the, the Russian security services, in a, in a terrorist training camp in Dagestan, which is a, a territory of Russia. Yeah, exactly. That was, that was the most important message uh, at that time, which uh, the, uh, Colonel Alexander Litvinenko was trying to give uh, to, the, to the British politicians and also to European and also other And so the British politicians, so what, if I understand you correctly, he gave them the information and they didn't do anything with it. They seemed to ignore it. And so then he decided to go public with it. And that's when he gave an interview to a Polish publication and and made his statement for the first time publicly. Exactly. Yeah. He wrote an open letter trying to alarm uh, public opinion. With me is uh, Thomas Pompowski. He is a Polish journalist who works for Polska Press, and he has been investigating the uh, the past uh, revolution in Poland, uh, the the way the communists uh, infiltrated Solidarity, and also we've gotten the revelation from him that Ayman al-Zawahiri, the number two man in Al Qaeda, was trained in a KGB training camp in Dagestan. This was revealed by Alexander Litvinenko. So um, let's let's go back to this again, Thomas. Is it seem likely to you that Alexander Litvinenko was assassinated precisely because he was bringing into the public view this very, very important information about al-Qaeda? I, I have to say, and I, I have to admit that this was the case, the motive was that Alexander Litvinenko was advising to the police around the world regarding the Russian mafia. He was working for the counterintelligence inside the FSB, dealing with the organized crime. So he could name everybody 
and he was uh, he was really dear man because he would go with this uh, open because he understood that this information will be uh, di- distributed uh, and public opinion will be informing they would not uh, support Putin's Russia, which he was uh, warning that that it will eventually become one day away. Now, this uh, uh, deal with al-Qaeda, this kind of infiltration of al-Qaeda and use of al-Qaeda, we had a number of defectors. We had defectors from the GRU, Vladimir Rezin, uh, who's known by his uh, name, uh, Viktor Suvorov, that he wrote under. And then we have in this country the defector uh, Stanislav Lunev. And both of these men talked about, Lunev privately talked to me about this, and uh uh, Suvorov actually wrote about it in his books, that the, there was some kind of a long-term strategy of the Soviet Union involving the use of a phony Arab terrorist front that would attack the United States in the future, and that this would be a diversionary action you know, before a lar- more large-scale attack on the United States of the West, which, uh, which really concerns me because now we see uh, Putin coming out with new weapons and and so on. Did Litvinenko think that Al Qaeda was being used to set something up? Uh, how did he put it together in his own mind? When we are talking about Al Qaeda, he would say, uh, "Let's not talk about Al Qaeda, who uh, nobody ever seen. Let's talk about FSB and KGB, because they were, uh, you know, KGB was teaching people how to hijack planes and." mostly the Hezbollah, Hamas, and and other terrorist uh, organizations. So the most important message which he uh, gave just a few days before he died, he would say that people should know that the FSB should be very quickly dissolved. Uh, The West should demand from Russia to expose agents and to uh, open the archives because they are really the root of evil. With me is is Thomas Pompovsky. He was in in uh, conversation with Alexander Litvinenko, and he's telling us what Litvinenko wanted us to know, and what, uh, for some reason, the Western governments and the Western media don't want to repeat. Involvements in the Middle East that would cause the price of energy to rise, would allow Russia to exert economic 
uh, energy influence on Europe to force Europe to go with Russia or to be neutral and to also exert direct pressure on the American economy to make capitalism look like it had failed and by strategically buying up companies to exert various economic uh, pressures on the different countries. A am I understanding this? Yep, exactly. This is what is happening. And Alexander Mitrinko was saying that, that there was a strategy designed by the FSB to elevate Putin to the highest position. Mm -hmm. With me is Thomas Pompowski. He is a journalist working for Polska Press. He has uh, been talking about the information given by Alexander Litvinenko, a, a KGB FSB defector to England, and uh, he is telling us about the communist strategy or Moscow's strategy to uh, to neutralize Europe and defeat the United States. We're running out of time, and perhaps you have some concluding remarks for American listeners, something you, you'd like to tell us. Uh, yeah, um, I would ask American uh, listeners to demand from their media and, and also to demand from, from politicians to support this uh, Polish uh, government. This government, which is trying to get rid of the communist influences, which are really, really massive. And, and uh, please support President Lech Kaczynski, first uh, real Polish president, and this prime minister who was fighting uh, in, in, in solidarity alongside uh, with Andrzej Gwiazda and uh, Krzysztof Wyszkowski, those really uh, solidarity heroes, which I hope uh, will be known inside America. So the struggle for freedom in Poland continues, and we need to support the good guys in Poland. And I want to thank you, Thomas, for coming on the show. It's very courageous, and it's an important message, and we just simply don't hear enough voices from the former communist bloc talking about the ongoing struggle for freedom there. Thank you very much, and I wanted also to give credit to you, Jeff, and, and to your website, which uh, was a real help for, for me and also for those people who are now uh, trying to help this government. And I have to say that Alexander Litvinenko uh, was following your, your website, was looking at, at, at your great uh, essays uh, every week, which was really encouraging, and, and he was hoping to come to America to meet you and, and other people who are fighting for the truth and who are not being blurred by this whole disinformation stuff flowing from Moscow. Well, thank you, Thomas, and hope we'll have you on again. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. God bless you, Thomas, and we'll uh, talk to you again soon. Thank you, Jeff. America must wake up. We must listen to the voices attempting to warn us. We must realize that Moscow and Beijing have a long-term strategy. They aim to destroy the United States as a major power, and they have successfully hoodwinked the United States government, the CIA, and the American people. If we do not wake up, millions of Americans could die. Our cities could be reduced to rubble. Our children's future could be taken away. Our freedom could be lost. This is not some alarmist fantasy. The deception in Eastern Europe is real. It was organized for decades by a huge machine of deception. That machine continues today, and the head of it is a KGB officer, now President of Russia, Vladimir Putin. You've been listening to the Jeff Nyquist Radio Show. 
We invite you to join us again next week at the same time. In the meantime, please visit Jeff's website at jrnyquist.com. Again, that's jrnyquist.com. Thank you for listening.